Thank you, Alistair and Hannah and Callum for leading too. Good evening, everyone. Uh, let's keep this uh, text in 1 Samuel open before us. And uh, we're going to walk through it tonight in a couple of points. But uh, first, let me pray and then we'll ask uh, for God's help. Our Father, uh, we thank you for the way in which we find in your word the Lord Jesus himself attesting to the truthfulness of uh, this word, even the Old Testament scripture. Uh, while many may dispense it or even have preference for uh, the New Testament, we thank you that every time he said it is written, he attested to the authority and the sufficiency of this word for today, for us. And so we pray that as we study it just now, we would study it uh, knowing that it's important to understand what you were saying to the people back then, and also what it means to us today, this side of the cross. Grant us uh, grace to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, even as we do this just now. In his name we ask it. Amen. Well, corruption in leadership uh, is common, sadly. Uh, the media loves an opportunity to expose uh, leaders' uh, abuse of power. Uh, hasn't that been in the news uh, with the Tory lobbying thing in the last few days? That's my definition of what's going on anyway. Uh, but whether it's dodging taxes or having affairs, uh, society does expect people to behave uh, in a certain way, and yet when they don't, people react. Uh, the newspapers do, the public does. How do you feel when it happens? How do you feel when it happens? How do you feel when a politician's sleazy affair comes to light? Or a businessman's fraud is discovered? It can leave you feeling pretty cynical about leadership, to be honest. And we've come almost to expect it. We roll our eyes and say, oh, not again. But how do we feel when it happens in the church? And sadly, it does. For church leadership itself offers no protection from corruption. I mean, just ask those who have been pastored in recent years by the likes of Carl Lentz, Mark Driscoll, John Smythe, Keith Patrick O'Brien, each of whom are just examples of those a handful of examples of those who've been exposed for some kind of greed or abuse of power or sexual immorality, and actually usually a combination of those. Well, we tend not just to roll our eyes at those things. No, our eyes well up when those things happen in the life of a church. And it's not cynicism that results. It's actually anger. It's that it's we are cross at the fact that the name of Jesus Christ is brought into disrepute. That should never be, given how glorious he is. But this anger is in fact what this corruption in church leadership, in the leadership of his people, this is what it evokes in God himself. And I start with that because this text shows us an abuse of leadership. I mean, Hophni and Phinehas in here and Eli, uh, they're all priests. 
And what was said of this time frame and the time of the judges in Judges 21-25, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, it seems that sadly that is true even of those who were responsible for serving God's people as they were bringing their sacrifices to God, seeking forgiveness for their sins. What do we think about this? What does God think about it? We saw part of the answer last week, because last week we saw, uh, or heard rather, Hannah's prayer for a son, and how God provided, and how we saw in the context of chapters one to three of this book, that actually Samuel was the beginning of a transition in the leadership of God's people, and especially in the area of worship. And Hannah's prayer really provided the key for us to understand pretty much everything else that's coming after in this book. God is the God who humbles and who exalts. The question we are asking with every single little episode throughout this book is, who gets what and why? The answer really is in chapter 2 and verse 30 of our text today. Those who honor me, I will honor but those who despise me will be disdained. So it's no surprise in them to find in this passage the disdaining of Eli's house, really the judging and the replacing of Eli's house. Let's walk, it through, uh, walk through it sorry, in two chunks. The first being this, uh, that God humbles those who despise him. That's number one. God humbles those who despise him. If you look with me at verses 12 to 26, that section there, it shows us that Eli's household despises God, right? Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, dishonor God by their sinful behavior. And the text draws our attention to three particular sins, greed. Look at verse 13 to 14, imagine the scene. A worshiper's offered sacrifice to God for his sins. The fat's been burned off. That's God's portion according to Levitical law. The rest of the meat's been boiled for the family, offering them the opportunity to eat this sacrificed meat in the presence of God so as to symbolically enjoy feasting in his presence. That was the point of it, right? And here comes the priest's servant to take the breast and the leg that God prescribed for them as part of the ceremonial law in Leviticus 7. That was allowed. But what's he doing with his big barbecue fork? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's taking what he wasn't allowed to take. He's taking the biggest and the best bits in order to feast. Whether he had a bit of a penchant for a, for a Sunday roast, we do not know. But they liked the meat. And actually, Throughout this chapter and the next couple of chapters, the text is unmistakable. They're getting fat on it. Their avarice, their greed is so indulgent, they're overweight. They're manipulating their position for greedy gain. And in doing so, the priests are disobeying God's word, despising God's people, and dishonoring God. That is not good. If their first sin is greed, the second is abuse. Verses 15 to 16 tell us they demand the worshippers meat, even at times before the fat was burned. The fat was God's portion. I've just said that. In the law, Leviticus 3 said so. And even if a worshipper objected, saying, hang on, that's God's bit. You're not going to take from God, are you? They were threatened with force. Hand it over now, or I'll take it forcefully. They're like playground bullies. Give me your sweets, or else... 
this abusive behavior. Now, verse 17 tells us what God thinks of these greedy bullies. Look at it with me. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They were sinning against him, acting like they hated God by their behavior, despising them as what they do. But that wasn't even the end of it. Verse 22 shows us that alongside greed and abuse, the third thing that they're practicing is sexual immorality. They were having sex with women who served at the tent of meeting. Now, whether this was consensual fornication or forcing themselves on women isn't clear, but greed, physical harm, and sexual impropriety are typical of those who abuse leadership positions. They're like the proud and the arrogant that Hannah condemns in her prayer earlier in chapter 2. I mean, even when reports of their behavior spread, there's no indication in the passage that there's any remorse. They just don't care. They pretty much think they're untouchable. Well, sin can delude us into thinking that way. What's at the root of such behavior? Go right back to verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, literally, the wording in the original language says, Eli's sons were sons of Belial. Sons of worthlessness. They had no weight, no glory to them. They were the opposite of glorious. They were worthless. For they did not know the Lord. In other words, they weren't believers. They offered sacrifices for other people's sins, but had no regard or remorse for their own, and God will not tolerate that. Though sadly, Eli does. Eli himself despises God by tolerating their sinful behavior. Now you might say, well, it doesn't quite sound like he's tolerating their behavior. Isn't he trying to do something about it in verses 22 to 25? Here we find Eli rebuking his sons, we think, I mean, he's heard all these reports from all the people of God and says, boys, this isn't good. He even expresses some concern for how they themselves will find a mediator before God. How's your heart going to be sorted out, boys, if you keep acting in this way? Now, it doesn't really sound like he's tolerating them, but when you look down at verse 29, the Lord rebukes Eli for not doing enough to stop this shocking behavior when he says, you honor your sons above me. Eli's been getting fat on his son's exploitation. In his position as both a priest, actually, and as a judge, as we'll see next time, he, if he had been reading the Word of God, would know that he had all authority, like a head teacher over a misbehaving pupil, you're expelled. He could have done that at the drop of a hat or a barbecue fork. But instead, he just kind of pleaded with them but loosely. Eli, who was very quick to rebuke Hannah in chapter 1, was way too slow to rebuke his sons. It was a case of too little too late. Verse 25b says, his sons, however, did not listen to his rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Wow. Now, there's a sentence that could well trouble us. But why should it? I mean, the Bible teaches in many places that a person can be so defiant and contemptuous in their rebellion against God 
that God will confirm them in it to the point that they would become, as Hebrews 6 says, beyond repentance. And God is not unjust in doing so. Sin is not something to be toyed with. God takes it very seriously. And sometimes people are given over to the judgment that they'll experience in eternity in this life. That's why we find in verses 27 to 34 then, God judging Eli's house. Now, in a time when the word of God was rarely heard, God made himself clear. We, he, he sends this man of God to make his feelings on the matter super clear. A prophet to declare his word. We don't know who he is. We're not given a name or anything like that. It doesn't really matter. But this man comes, and what, was, what does God make of the sin of Eli's house? Well, verses 27 to 29, he's basically showing up their offense, basically saying, everything you've got is a super gracious gift from me. I chose you to do all these different things. To, you've enjoyed privileged access to me. I give you that. You've enjoyed a unique service among all of God's people. I gave you that. Uh, you've enjoyed food as part of your service. I know because of your priestly service, you can't go out and get a proper job, make tents or grow wheat or whatever like that, but I've made provision. I've given you a leg and a thigh from every offering that's been made. I've made provision for you. I gave you all of that. But then in verses 28 to 29, he exposes in no uncertain terms the contempt, the offense of their contempt. Why do you scorn my sacrifice? All that you're doing, all that I've given you is ultimately for me and my glory so that I might enjoy this covenant relationship with my people. But you scorn it. Every English translation of that verse, actually, I read lost something of the original Hebrew. Verse 29 literally says, why do you kick me in the face? That is strong language. And then he says, why honor your sons more than me? God blasts them with questions that indict them, proving what Hannah prayed in verse 3. The Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. Now, what sentence does God pass on Eli's house, having judged them? Well, verses 30 to 34 tell us he does two things. Firstly, God revokes all the privileges of priesthood given to the branch of Eli's house. Look with me, verse 30. I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. Far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. In other words, since you've so lightly esteemed me, I will lightly esteem you. He'll count them as worthless. Secondly, God resolves to cut off the strength of Eli's house, which is incredible given the contrast we found in Hannah's prayer at the start of this chapter. Three times in that prayer of, of joy in the Lord, she prays the Lord has lifted up my strength. He has strengthened me. He has lifted up my strength, my horn. But... No, the strength of Eli's house is cut off. 
those who have abused their power and might, in no uncertain terms, God says, you will be weakened. Those who've used their strength to enforce their wickedness and gratify their sinful lusts will have that strength sapped, drained away. And even though God does not cause them to drop down dead right that very instant, death is their punishment. In the near future, Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. In the years to come, those who are left, tears of grief will be their drink. Those who once got fat in God's portion will find themselves, as we see at the end of this section, begging for the bread of the priests. How ironic. Hannah was right. God really does bring about some of the most stunning reversals. Now, if God, as we think about how to apply this, if God humbles those who despise him, what does that actually mean for people who are corrupt leaders in churches today? And they are around. They are, there are plenty of churches in our land today that would be led by those who are not Christians. You may not find them sinning as arrogantly as Hophni and Phinehas, but they're there. And who can count how many men have been exposed as Hophni's and Phinehas's, exploiting church members for their own gain, abusing their authority through bullying and sexual misconducts. Verse 17 is perfectly apt. The sin of these men is very great in the Lord's sight. And God is our judge. God is their judge. As James 3, 1 reminds us, teachers will be judged more strictly. So it means, basically, that today we should pray that those who practice such sin would see what Hannah prayed and repent. The Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. And at the same time, we ought to glorify God for maintaining justice. But what about more generally? I mean, if God humbles those who despise him, what does it mean for all of us? Not just leaders. Because it isn't just leaders that are prone to corruption, right? It's all of us. It isn't the position of leadership that breeds the kind of corruption that we see in the three sins these guys committed. That's in all of us. Greed, abuse of power, sexual sin, and that's common to all. Well, we should be those who lovingly confront that kind of sin in one another. And I emphasize the word lovingly. Um, it's a church family's responsibility, not just a leadership's or an eldership's responsibility, to speak into other people's lives with words of correction and rebuke. It's, our, it's all of us. I think there's encouragement in, in this passage to not do what Eli does and ignore sins when we see them. We might just be despising God by doing so and becoming complicit in another person's sin. But there is a danger also that our service, like Hophni and Phinehas, is done for ourselves and not for God's. It's so easy to just fall into the pattern of going through just the run of things. This is just what we do. But ministry that's done, service that's practiced, that's devoid of the devoted heart, 
Well, I bet that's where it all started for these guys. If gratitude doesn't drive the ministry that each of us do in our own particular ways, then it may well be arrogance. Put it to death. Don't toy with sin. Maybe talk it through with someone and ask for prayer and accountability. Now, if you're here tonight and you wouldn't say, I've turned to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I wonder how this sounds to you. I mean, you might not say that you despise God, but to take God's gifts of life and breath and grace with no regard for God the giver is what he calls sin. Uh, I hated seeing that about myself before I became a Christian. I like to think of myself before I became a Christian as mostly good and occasionally bad, but that in itself was a lie. But seeing it, that living my life without God was dishonoring to him. It was a necessary thing to come to that point of understanding. And to behave with contempt in the face of his grace meant that in his eyes, I was, without repenting of my sin, I was worthy of judgment. Everyone is when they do not know the Lord. What's worse, we're guilty of showing contempt for God's sacrifice too, not an animal, but his son, Jesus. For his death on the cross was a sacrifice for sin. If we think too little of that sacrifice, then we despise God's love. The good news is, though, that there's a solution. That Eli asked, if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? The answer is, in fact, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the faithful priest that God sent. The one who Hebrews 7.25 says that it's because of his death and resurrection, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede. We have a mediator. We need only come to him in faith and repentance and find the eternal salvation that he holds out to us. Receive that great gift and honor him forever as our glorious God. That's the first point, that God humbles those who despise him, as we see in Eli's household. But there is a flip side to this passage as well. In point two, we find God exalts those who honor him. Look with me at verses 35 to 36. God promises in here to raise up a faithful priest. He says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what is according, who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Okay, who is it? Is the question you should be asking at this point. Who is this priest, this faithful priest, and what is his house? Immediately you're meant to go, well, is it Samuel? That's what's happening in the immediate context of chapters 1 to 3. There's a transition taking place, as I've already said. And I don't know if you notice, but interwoven throughout the whole story of the demise of Eli's priestly house, there's these wonderful little snippets, proper juxtapositions about Samuel and his household. You know, when Hophni and Phinehas don't know God and they're serving as unfaithful priests, what do you read in verse 18? Look with me. Samuel, 
was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Verse 21, growing up in the presence of God. Now, what's with the clothing reference? What's the ephod thing? Well, if you've not read the Old Testament law before, you'll realize that an ephod is basically a tunic that the high priest wore. And on each shoulder, he'd have two stones with six names of the tribes of Israel on one, the other six names of the other tribes of Israel on the other, so that he would be, as it were, coming into the presence of God, bearing the people of God on his shoulders. It was symbolic. But here is Samuel wearing one that his mum made for him. That's not just cute. That's symbolic. It's important. Samuel looked every bit the priest he was, even while in his youth he was ministering. If the young people, if Rooted were in the service right now, and there are some young people in here, I'd be saying, listen, there is a seven-year-old way to glorify God in his service. There is a 12-year-old way to glorify God in service of him. But they're not here. But there's another little comment after verses 22 to 25. In those verses, we heard, of course, that Hophni and Phinehas are being criticized by God's people and under God's uh, condemnation. But verse 26 says, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Everybody loved Samuel. I bet when people were walking up to Shiloh for the sacrifice, I bet they'd say, I really hope I get Samuel and not the guy with the big barbecue fork. He's so godly. You know, it's not good to have favorites as, uh, in leaders, of course, not unless the others are worthless scoundrels. But Samuel is loved. Because Samuel, the thing that's put out for us again and again, that he's faithful. And actually, what's missing from this little bit about Samuel ministering before the Lord is the, the, the words, the accompanying words that we saw earlier in the chapter, under Eli. They're gone now. He's not ministering under Eli now. He's just ministering before the Lord. So is it Samuel? Yes, but only for a season. He is a substitute, really, serving as a priest, but he will go on to serve more as a prophet in the weeks to come, as we'll see. Uh, and in times when worship was corrupt and the word of God was rarely heard, he was going to practice both. But Samuel's house actually is not the priestly house that God uh, talked about when he spoke to or when he condemned Eli. It is, in fact, a guy called Zadok. Zadok, who honored God. And you're looking at me as if to say, where did that come from? <laughs> Didn't even remember reading about a guy called Zadok in there somewhere. And I know that. But actually, it comes much later in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, decades later, when Solomon, Israel's third king, is installed. We read, so Solomon removed Abiathar from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word the Lord had spoken at Shiloh about the house of Eli. So Abiathar, in, the priestly, in his priestly garb was the last of Eli's house, and he's just been replaced. Solomon brings Zadok in, in his place, a faithful Levite who anointed Solomon to kingship, actually, and he is the one who serves before Solomon as the anointed. Right? That was confusing. 
But what you have is a later explanation in Scripture of what exactly is going on there. Read text within its context and the answers in the text. That said, there is what we would call a double fulfillment of the man of God's prophecy in this passage. For God's word is super clear. In the wider context, we understand that in the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the great high priest. Jesus is the great high priest who honors God and is truly exalted for it. As Hebrews 7 says, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Yes. That's what we read from earlier, uh, read about in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 9, that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. Yes. Christ is the great high priest. In contrast to Eli's household, the Hophnes and the Phineases, Christ will never be dishonorable in his contact, for he has been made perfect forever. He will never, never, ever abuse the sacrifice that God's people need to bring them to God because he is that perfect sacrifice. And he has offered it once for all in absolute perfection. So that we have a mediator. We have one who stands in our place and intercedes for us before the Father for absolutely forever until the day when we see him face to face. He is our great high priest. So what would you say that we are? You would expect the text to infer that we are really just, well, happy recipients of such a great salvation. And we are. But actually, you're more than that. We are his priestly house, ministering before him, the anointed one. Revelation 1, 5 and 6 says that he's not only loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, it says he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. We are the priesthood in the new covenant. We who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're all priests. There is no need for a priestly figure. That's not what I am, Paul or Andy. That's not what we are. We are pastors, but fellow members of the body of Christ. We're not priestly mediators. You don't need to come to one of us in order to take your request to God. You've got that access. 
There is no absolution that I can pronounce over you because Christ has already pronounced it. And I don't have any authority to do that. I'm a man in weakness. But we have the word of God which says all we need to hear about the forgiveness we need and the lives we ought to live. Now, as his priests, we have a responsibility then, not only to enjoy the salvation and make the most of this access, privileged access that we have to our God and King, we ought to live in a way that brings honor and glory to him. Will we be scoundrels, sons of Belial, well, that's completely contrary to what we truly are, sons and daughters of the king. Do we dishonor God then like Hophni and Phinehas did by living to please ourselves in whatever way? Or will we be like Samuel and in following our king Jesus after him, faithful servants, ministering the word of God to each other, interceding for each other, proclaiming the gospel to those who need to hear it, doing what is in God's heart and God's mind concerning the gospel of his son and the glory of his name. You choose. Doesn't it make the sinful practices that are perhaps coming to your mind right now concerning our behavior in this past week, doesn't it bring remorse doesn't it bring an encouragement to confess these to God? Doesn't it just put that little bit more juice in us regarding a love-compelled, grace-motivated obedience to Christ our King? That's what it should produce as priests. Remembering chapter 2, verse 30. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. Let's pray. Take a few moments to pray your own prayers in your heart in response to what you've heard tonight, and then we're going to stand and sing two songs of praise to our great high priest and to God our King.